start the podcast, right? You're like, oh, do we, do we have to start with that? Um, and so how did you two meet each other? I know that you both graduated from HSU different times. At different times, yes. Yeah. So um, I got after I got my PhD, I got to come back and be a professor here. And Stephanie was one of my students and a leader in my lab. And then after graduating, um, Stephanie luckily stayed on with the lab because I've got a really big lab, a lot of students in there who are really great. And Stephanie came on um, and has been helping to manage all of that stuff as a like a co-PI for the lab, which is great. And um, she was teaching in the department, still does teach, but also has a pretty cool gig doing research on campus. So, Yeah, and one of the nice things about that is, you know, we had such an excellent like mentor-mentee relationship, and there were so many things that I learned from her about being a mentor. And so when I slid into the teaching role, um, staying on with the lab was a way that I could really just kind of like pass down some of the same really awesome things that I learned from her, which was great. And then also we do research together, which is pretty cool too. The coolest, yeah. Yeah, probably that's, the best part. Yeah. That's gotta be exciting <laughs> working with a former student and being able to bring them in and say, oh wow, like this is what education does. Like, yeah, we can absolutely. Work and like, cause we don't get PhD students at um, Humboldt, although we would like to get Sadly. PhD students. I heard that there's a movement in the CSU system for that. And that might just be my wishful confirmation bias thinking, yeah. but I'm really hopeful that that actualizes. If I could just stay here forever and continue to go to school, I would do that. I've 100%. got a few forever students, but it makes me really happy because uh, you you prep them for two years and you get them right where you want them and then they go off and leave you. So I, think I have one who stayed. So Forever student is a nice way of putting it. You could also say just like failure to launch. Like just <laughs> you were too good. I never left. <laughs> Which is not a bad thing in an educator to be that good that the students want to stick around and want to work with you. I think yeah, that's a safe thing to say. That's really nice. But um, I'm I'm lucky when they do. I've got a few of them who uh, work on campus or like doing teaching or doing research and things. So that's really great. And then I get to work with a bunch of my former students who are in PhD programs now. And that's also really great. So, And what is the Social Identity Lab? Because that's actually how I came across you both. Um. What isn't the social identity lab? Um, so we are a research lab that's focused pretty broadly on um, a theory that I was trained in for my PhD um, by my advisor, who's Michael Hogg. Um, and this theory is social identity theory. And it very broadly is a theory of how um, the groups to which people belong impact people's self-concept or the knowledge that they have about self and how they make us feel about ourselves. But this can also be used to predict and identify reasons why people are horrible to each other. Um, we do a lot of dark research um, looking at things like political polarization or trends towards extremist leadership. So we use that kind of model of how people gain a sense of understanding about who they are and the environments around them from the groups to which they belong. And then we use we use that to look at a variety of those other behaviors, if that makes sense. It must be an interesting time doing that kind of research in our current climate. Hell yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, for sure. And I would say because I've been doing stuff on um, uh, political extremism and political identities since grad school. And then come 2015, people were real excited about that research because um, we were seeing a lot of it play out in real time, not just in the United States, but in um, France and all over the world. So and especially the stuff that we do on trends towards populism and things like that just became really interesting to people because we're seeing it all over the place. What do you think that uptick is stemming from? 
just the social media climate, the isolation from COVID. I mean, why? It seems like it's ramped up, especially lately. It's people are just going 100 miles per hour now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and Stephanie can speak to this as well because we do uh, the research on conspiracy theories. But I think it's a it's a really big question. Um, a lot of it, I think, has to do with leadership and what we've seen with leadership, but, but and the rhetorics that those leaders have been able to successfully use to um, get into an influential position. And once there, once they have galvanized the support. Uh, toward them, then it's just going to move in their direction. And then you get this sense of, well, we're moving in this direction, they're moving in the other direction. And I think we are seeing that worldwide. The internet, I would never blame, you know, online is terrible. Like, I would never blame that. And I hate when people are like, all of this is because of the internet. I'm like, who created it? These are basic human processes that they're so basic, but they're they speed up when people have the ability to communicate quickly. And then what we saw in COVID for sure, and you want us to talk a little bit about that because both of us going into COVID, like I was incredibly uncertain and we do research on uncertainty. I'm like, oh my God, how am I going to be an academic? How am I going to do all these things that I use to inform who I am? And then I realized it was Stephanie and I were talking, we're like this is a natural progression to endorsement for conspiracy theory for people who are looking for structures that they can use to reduce that uncertainty and also for ways to say it's going to be okay, right? And so you want to talk about that a bit? Yeah. And part of that too is, you know, COVID-19 created this environment where we, you know, we were interested in conspiracy theories and extremist belief systems before the pandemic. And then we kind of were watching these processes unfold in real time on a large scale much of the research that had been done on conspiracy theories prior to the past three years were on these really niche kind of fringe groups. It wasn't, you know, massive amounts of people buying into these massively extreme belief systems that were really affecting not just, you know, haha, it's a funny thing to believe in, but also affecting their health behavior and their voting behavior and the way in which they treat others. Um, and so, you know, the research prior to this really focused on extremism really focused on, okay, when when in a person's life are they most susceptible to believing in some of these really extreme group systems or, or belief systems within these groups? Um, and they would look at things like the internet, right? So you can imagine the person in his basement by himself, you know, feeling really isolated and then finding these communities, these echo chambers online. Well, what we found was that when you had large global pandemic where many, many people were also experiencing these feelings of uncertainty, these feelings of um, anxiety around the future and around COVID, you also saw them more willing to adopt some of these extreme belief systems. And that's where we start to see this sort of mainstream adoption. Um, and I think aside from the uncertainty part, you can also think about how populism has fed into this as well. So thinking about the way in which leaders frame these things and how it might increase somebody's willingness to buy into it, right? So populism, the idea that, um, you know, there's a, a set of elites who are depriving you, the underdog, of something really important to you, right? And so we know from both of those lines of research looking at populism and looking at people in their isolation and uncertainty, you had just like this perfect storm for, for the explosion of these crazy ideas. And when people are alone, it gets weird because they want to feel like they're a part of something because they're not sure. doing anything. Yeah. And you and you think about it, too, because if, if you're able to communicate uh, with people online, then you're not alone. You're psychologically not alone. 
And um, even if you're not necessarily contributing to the conversation, you can still feel a sense of connection and connectivity to those other people and the belief systems that they're putting out there. So it gives you something like it's psychologically satisfying, right? Especially in a time of need. And you don't have the social pushback that you might in a circle in the real world because you're not actively looking for people that disagree with you. You're going towards the people that say, oh, yeah, there's this conspiracy going on. We need to we need to link up because we're the ones that see this. Look how special we are because we get this. Yes. And we're going to save the world. We're going to save the world. And those other people don't get it. Right. And um, I think that is incredibly fascinating, that sense of like how unique and different from the rest of the population that this can be. And then also one of the things that we see in the research is that when you get the criticism from outsiders, that actually galvanizes support for that thing. So it's like, hey, these these folks are so stupid for believing in this. And when my students start to say stuff like that, I'm like, you're going to drive them the direction you do not want to drive them. You're creating this intergroup context and they're never going to believe or trust you. And that's a really scary place to be because you can't have active criticism from, you know, an out group to help that group in some way because they're not going to accept it. And it's just going to drive them further away from you. That has always been my argument against censorship is that by censoring these ideas, we're not removing them we're just shoving them to the side and allowing them to grow stronger in this echo chamber Mm -hmm. yeah and it can that sense of we are all very different and they are never going to understand us and we can't trust them and i think that having that lack of ability to trust criticism from the outside in some way so that we can make ourselves better we can make our nation better whatever is better it's not happening right now and it's 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 getting worse that's what the data show so were either of you surprised going into COVID by what, by how quickly it ramped up or with working with the data, did you anticipate that? And once people got isolated and especially when the lockdowns really ramped up, shit was going to hit the fan in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, it, there, I, there was, I mean, the initial shock of like, oh, fuck, this is our lives. Right. But um, and one of the things that I thought was very interesting was putting myself in that context. Like I am a person who... I would like to say dedicates my life to science, but I remember engaging in confirmation bias and thinking, "I'm, a, you know what? It looks like COVID's over, right?" And it was complete. I'm like, I, I'm starting to go down that route of wishful thinking that's taking me into non-science. And so, you know, you could place yourself in this, but all of the research that you know I've been doing since grad school, that my advisor has been doing since before then on things like group polarization, intergroup relations, extremism, all of that said. When this occurs and this huge level of uncertainty occurs, you're not going to get this, oh, yeah, we're all coming together. You're actually going to get a situation in which there's going to be more conflict. Well, and we use these groups as our means for understanding ourselves and the ways in which we should be thinking, we should be feeling, how we should behave in these contexts. And so one of the things, especially going back to kind of this idea where um, people are really quick to say, well, well, that's a stupid idea, right? Like, how could anyone smart believe something like that, right? Well, what we know from the conspiracy theory research that's um, even pre-pandemic is that conspiracy belief transcends economic status. It transcends uh, educational borders. It extends through many different classes within society. It's not just like this small, crazy subset of people. In fact, you have people who are doctors and lawyers and all these folks who 
as a society we deem as being incredibly smart, still susceptible to these same human nature mechanisms that drive us to believe in this kind of stuff. And so I think it's also really important to just think about how even in those contexts, people look to their groups and to the people who they value around them to understand the world, regardless of what their other you know, identities might be in terms of an educator or, or those things. Um, and so when you see, you know, many of us had people during the pandemic, family members that started to post stuff on Facebook and we started to say, oh my gosh, you too, you, you know, you, you believe in this stuff too. And the first gut reaction is to unfollow that person, particularly if the nature of what they're posting is something that's really hideous. Um, but really what that does is it creates a situation where that person is no longer sharing that shared sense of community with others who don't believe in that. Um, and so their only point of reference is other people who already have adopted and bought into the belief system. So it becomes really dangerous when we kind of cut ourselves away from folks, especially when um, they're, you know, their only source of community is other people who also believe really dangerous ideas. Is there any way to bring somebody back when they cross that threshold? That's an interesting question. I usually respond with, I only look at negative stuff. So, <laughs> um, I mean, so there's a lot of research in the intergroup relations literature that could speak to um, ways in which you can kind of expand group boundaries. I think that the role of leadership is really important. Um, however, we live in a place such that it does not benefit people to get elected by um, this sort of come together type of policy, particularly we're seeing it on one side slightly more than the other side at the moment, but you still see the other side is going to push their leader further away. And there's not, I mean, there is some research on um, intergroup leadership, and these are my friends who do it, but right now you don't see a situation in which you have a Democrat coming in and bringing all folks together, you know, or a, a Republican coming in and bringing all folks together. It's just that's not going to happen. In an ideal world, you'd have someone who's not a member of, you know, partisan or comes from a specific group who's truly representative of all of us if you're looking at it on the national level. But that's not going to happen. So, yeah, I'm not. Reducing people's uncertainty is important, but that's also really hard to do on a mass scale. So, Well, and one of the things that you can do for folks who are feeling particularly uncertain is provide them with that shared group membership um, that's not these extremist groups. So um, we joke about this all of the time with the Social Identity Lab, but one of the ways in which the research lab is so effective is it creates this identity for people to latch onto it within the university as a student, particularly among students who are new or maybe don't know their place in the university. And it gives them sort of this shared sense of community. Um, and so I know it's a really unsatisfying answer. Um, it's that's, the context, it's a really but, good answer. Yeah. So there's the uh, 2017 paper with uh, Cruz and Skipper and me. And what, one of the things that we looked at on that paper was we made university students feel really uncertain. And then we gave them the um, opportunity to um, identify with groups. And one of those groups was some of the participants um, were given the opportunity to identify with a student group that was really into partying. So maybe not something that's necessarily conducive to good academics. The other group was a study type of group. And um, in general, students, new students were like, hey, I want to be in that party group, right? That makes sense. It sounds like fun. But what we found is under uncertainty, 
the norm of the group didn't matter. So whether it was a party group or a study group, what actually mattered was how intuitive that group is. And intuitivity is basically how groupy that group is. So how much, uh, how interdependent the relationships are amongst people in the group, how similar the group members are. So you get this like nice, cohesive, um, interdependent type of group that we can use to reduce uncertainty. So if you could make groups, and this is, I think, where Stephanie was going with this, groups that are potentially more helpful and allow people to come together, but still have that sense of intuitivity, including the similarity, the interdependence amongst group members, a, a level of group cohesion, um, that would be helpful. And that would be grounded in the science too. Are there certain types of uncertainty that lend itself more to be persuaded in a certain direction like in terms of overall life uncertainty versus direction or purpose or religious uncertainty yeah so that's a really interesting question the um and so the the branch of social identity theory in which uncertainty identity theory is uh lives or exists is from my advisor michael hogg's work and um i'm always talking hog up Maybe he'll watch this and be like, thanks, Amber, but, um, <laughs> or listen to this. But um, so from that theory, it's a theory of self-uncertainty or self-concept uncertainty. So really knowledge about who you are. And the things that make you uncertain are likely different than the things that make me uncertain are different than the things that make Stephanie uncertain. And certainly if you bring in other cultural factors or people living in war zones, the things that make them or you know, people who are living in Turkey and Syria right now, the things that are making them uncertain are certainly different than the things that are making me uncertain. And it could be um, uncertain. And so we can have uncertainty about, you know, kind of our personality. I thought I used to know who I was, but I don't anymore. Not in this context. That can be enough. It could also be you're in a romantic relationship and you're like, I don't know how I feel about this, or I don't know if this is going to exist. You know, you have that level with interpersonal relationships. You can also have a level of uncertainty that you get, like you're in a group and, you know, I like this group, but I don't know how they feel about me. You can feel that level of uncertainty. You can feel it on an intergroup level in which it is, you know what, our group is in competition with this other group, this other out group, and I don't know if we're going to fare well, or it can be on this world one. The point about the uncertainty that motivates people um, to cling to their groups is that it's relevant to the self. And so whatever is relevant to the self um, should, and the research shows, is what activates that. And so, again, if I were to say, you know, hey, Nicholas, um, tell me three things that make you uncertain about who you are. Um, and if you said what sandwich I'm going to eat today, be like, is that important to you? And you said no, but what I'm really uncertain about is, um, you know, my relationship with my best friend, you know, then that would be the thing that if I then were to provide you with a real cohesive group, then you'd be like, that group looks good. Does that make sense? Yeah. So really anybody is susceptible to yeah. falling into these traps. It, it's true. I mean, I could, we could make some jokes about a person that you and I know who I'm fairly certain doesn't experience uncertainty. And that's the only time you'll hear me say I'm certain about something. But, um, you know, there are kind of some individual differences and I'm not going to trend on that too much because I don't do research on individual differences, but like some individual differences and, um, on uncertainty. So I'm going to be a lot more uncertain than let's take my partner, for example, because that guy doesn't experience much uncertainty, right? I'm walking around with, uh, uncertainty, 
um, all of the time. Um, and so, but there is, um, and when we actually, I should put this out there. Uh, so you're, you're going to have, I'm going to say those weirdos who don't experience the uncertainty, but at different points throughout the day, we all experience it. Right. And so you'll hear me the way that I talk about, um, self uncertainty, you will very rarely hear me say, um, certain and uncertain. I will say lower and uncertainty because most people have something that they're like a little bit uncertain about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, go well, ahead. And I was just going to say, and that's a, the way a lot of the research that we do is conducted. So it's because of our ability to actually induce feelings of self-uncertainty that we're able to experimentally test a lot of the things that we want to know about. So like we can randomly assign folks to either feel very uncertain about themselves through some of these priming mechanisms that we have or randomly assign them to feel more certain. Um, and as a part of that, that allows us to make these comparisons or to test- Or less uncertain. Or less uncertain. <laughs> there you go. There, you just said, we don't say that. Well, yeah. essentially we can we can manipulate this. So it's not just something that, you know, you have a, a resting state of self-uncertainty. In fact, we are really, really good at reducing uncertainty when we feel it, um, which adds another layer of complexity when we want to study this stuff, because sometimes right after making someone feel uncertain, it's such an uncomfortable, what's called a negative drive state or just a really uncomfortable feeling that they'll latch on to any group that they can kind of get their hands on to reduce those feelings. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a group either, right? It's just if that's the thing that is in the, the context that you can latch on to first, because nobody likes to feel bad. So we look at the, the easiest and most effective way to reduce the uncertainty and usually do so on an unconscious level. So when we were kind of talking about the political divide apparent today, and it almost feels like there's some priming going on with whatever side you're on to keep you on that side. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, and it, it, I've, you know, it really benefits the people who are in elected positions to have a polarized nation to a certain extent because it's going to continue to keep them their jobs. So there's that. Um, but there is also I mean, if you listen and if you look at my YouTube, it'll be like, oh, there's a whole bunch of in the queue. There's a whole bunch of Trump speeches and Biden speeches and Obama speeches. I listen to and watch a whole bunch of uh, leaders speeches and I like with leaders throughout the world as well, um, because I'm really interested in the rhetoric that they use. And we talked a little bit about the populism, but when you have populist leaders who rise up, the rhetoric that they use comes from this sense of deprivation, that there are people out there who are depriving us of our basic needs or depriving us of our humanity or who are taking stuff that used to be ours, right? And and we don't know if they keep treating us this way. We don't know if we're going to continue to exist as a group. And that type of rhetoric is incredibly powerful for people keeping people on that side, right? And then you do see it, I mean, because the way that that was described sound like right-wing populism, but you see that you see this with left-wing populism. We just got some data back from the um, midterm election, or the, not the midterm, the, the presidential elections in Brazil, where we had a really easy case where we could look at both left and right-wing populism. And um, so that's some cool stuff that's on the horizon, but yeah. Well, it's scary in the sense that one of the things that came out from COVID that was really apparent to me was this ability to other people that I, I hadn't at least personally seen to this extent. You get it a little bit with immigration. A lot of people can easily other that. Yeah. But just your fellow neighbor, where now it's, especially if the mass debate came up or the vaccine debate, 
it was like you would flip a switch. And if this person's not on your side, they are now this. They're against us. Yeah, Yeah. they're this threat and they need to be dealt with. It's so, and the identity markers, because they were so clear, right? It was like, that person's not wearing a mask. They're not with me, right? It was black and white. It was so very clear in the assumptions that people were making. And I just remember going into the co-op. It was uh, when the when mask orders were released one of the first times and one of my very best friends and I were going into the co-op and she didn't have her mask on and I was like, people are going to think I'm one of them. And then I thought, I know this research. What am I doing? I am using that mask as a marker. And I was willing to keep my mask on at that point when I didn't actually feel unsafe. I just didn't want to be um, misidentified with the other side. And I was like, well, that's an interesting research question. And also, if I'm doing that with my knowledge of these processes, this is like very widespread. Yeah. Yeah. If you recognize that and you fall into it, what does that say for the rest of us? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it goes back to sort of the core tenets of social identity theory and that we gain a positive sense of who we are because of these groups that we're a part of. Right. So it's not just like, oh, you know, I'm a Democrat because I believe a lot of the same things. Sure, that's true. But I also derive a positive sense of self from that. And they help me to be able to predict and explain and understand what's going on around me because I can look to my fellow group members and say, you know, how am I doing in this context in comparison to everybody else? Oh, they're all wearing a mask. I'm going to wear a mask too. And that, that gives me comfort because it tells me how I should be behaving in a context that's super uncertain and uncomfortable. And so I think part of that too, is that when people's identities in that context are threatened, Right. So when you start to feel like, oh, my gosh, they're going to put me in this group that I'm not a part of. I'm not wearing a mask. They're all going to think I have all these attitudes that I don't hold. It's now shaking the foundation of who you are. It's not just being a Democrat or a Republican. It's your sense of identity. It's your sense of self is being shooken, which is a bigger emotional experience than just, oh, they you know, they think I, you know, I vote for Trump, which is, you know, also a terrible feeling, but it's because it's shaking who you are. It's 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 much less surface level than I think we like to believe it is. Yeah, it really hits at a variety of things. So it hits on like all of those motivations for social identity, right? Because you have the uncertainty bit. It can produce uncertainty. It can make me question the knowledge that I have of who I am as a person. But in addition to that, it can make me feel badly about myself, right? And so that's, you know, another thing we seek to feel favorably about ourselves, which means we seek to feel favorably about our groups. And that's really important. And that can drive, like, well, this distance between groups, both the knowledge that we get from our in-group, but also how we feel about the group, because we seek to feel not just good about who we are as a member of that group, but different from a relevant out group. Because in part, we know who we are by who we're not, right? And so you get those feelings that are attached with it, but you also get the knowledge that is attached with it. And that's that's some cool stuff. That group level conformity is a scary thought for me whenever I start going to that realm, because you can get people to do anything if you just move the herd far enough in yeah. one direction. Yeah, and I always think it's really important that Um, when you see it, because people aren't going into when they move as a unit like that. I I wholeheartedly do not believe that people go into that without thinking that they have specific motivations and they're gaining cues from other people. So they're actually, they're thinking about 
their behaviors and their behaviors are planned to a certain extent and they're motivated, but they're motivated by the group level identity versus the individual identity and all of the information that we get from the group level identity, including those people around us who are leaders within our groups, leaders within our movements. And those are the people that we look to for cues so they can drive us in their directions, right? Which is interesting. And groups aren't all bad. We saw, you know, for our lab, for example, um, our lab got huge over COVID, right? And we were just having these meetings on Zoom. And I was thinking, who wants to have another meeting on Zoom at like 6 or 7 p.m.? All of them did. We had like, we were getting meetings with like 35, 40 people just there because it was like, oh, we all have this sense of who we are from this, right? And so the outcome of that, I think for all of us who were in those Zoom meetings, I'm not saying I liked all of my Zoom meetings, but I thought our lab meetings worked out really well. It was a very positive experience for us. And I think that that's some of the things that likely helped with some of our mental health and things like that. So I'll also say if you've not tried to sing happy birthday to somebody with 30 different people with 30 different Wi-Fi connections, it is a glorious experience. So if you're not over a Zoom at this point, highly recommend trying to sing somebody happy birthday with 30 different Zoom timing differences. <laughs> yeah, SciLab is real big on singing happy birthday. So I also, in all of the classes I teach, as soon as I learn somebody's birthday, I'm like, oh, fuck yeah, we're singing happy birthday. Yeah. I was never a big happy birthday guy. I love singing it for other people, but when Same. it's on you, it's yes. it's a different story. It's like receiving presents, right? I also don't um, don't love receiving presents. Um but it, it's it's that gift you feel like you're getting to share the joy with other people. And because my birthday is over the holidays, nobody gets to sing to me. So I get to live the best of all worlds. Yeah, you've got yeah. it made. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just it's such a weird time for everyone. And you would hope that in these chaotic times, a leader would arise, right? They would steer us back and the right direction, whatever that is, or bring about unity. But like you said, it feels like they're just playing into their base. Mm -hmm. And so what my fear has always been is that that leaves this void open. And then there's this third party that may be worse, maybe better that fills that and comes to prominence. Yeah. The third party bit is so, um, one of my former students and I do a whole bunch of research on like mapping what we call group, group prototypes and, um, so it's like all of the the attributes that we can use to describe who our group is, like what is the essence, the core of our group. And so we look at ways that we can map these things. And in the United States context, it's really easy because you know who you are by who you're not. And you have this two party context. Right. So it's it's the math behind that is much easier than when we go to Canada and we're like, all right, we're going to pull a third party into this. And so it's hard. This this our math isn't there yet to get like the numbers on it, but I am curious to see, you know, does that group, if, if a group does arise, does it have to be more moderate or is the fact that that group it lays uh, that, that group or those people or that leader is somewhere in the middle, is that actually threatening? And we're like, nope, F that person because they are threatening the distinctiveness that we have between these two groups. That is a good study. Well, you heard that a lot in 2016, right? Yeah. That, oh, you can't vote for an independent because then you're going to be taking votes away from X. Mm-hmm. And then if they lose, it's your fault. You screwed over whatever 
party they're talking about. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to how the context that we've been under is galvanizing. People are motivated to do stuff when there are big problems or big threats on the horizon. And or so when they're angry. Like angry is anger is such a driver of behavior. And that's like you want to get people to action, you piss them off. And then also you want to get multiple people to collective action, right? And and some we need we need that like there are th- real social issues that need to be addressed and we see this coming out of movements such as black lives matters that are making actual change from the collective which is cool but you see it in perhaps less positive movements as well where you get anger as that driving force and people get super motivated to act on behalf of the collective and it can drive us in a direction that we don't want to go so Sorry, I jumped in. No, I was no, like, no. anger, I love anger. <laughs> it's the only emotion I talk about. So, Well, collective emotions are amazing. I mean, you look at the way in which, especially during COVID, you had these massive spreads of emotion, right? So even when you saw something happening to somebody that you don't even know, but you identify with that person because let's say they're wearing a mask or they're not wearing a mask or whatever it is your group decided was the way that is the right way to behave, you had massive amounts of collective emotion tied to those videos that you saw on YouTube. and those small instances were galvanizing. People went out and would do stuff about it because they were so, you know, excited by what they were seeing. Um, And I don't think that in a moderate context or in this sort of ideal sort of world peace context, people are motivated to, to move in the same way, which I'm not saying is a good thing, but I think it creates a big challenge for, for trying to find these, these paths to, you know, unity or paths to peace. Um, is, you know, why we say social psychology, especially social identity theory is so dang depressing is because there isn't a lot of work out there that that carves a path to to fixing a lot of this stuff. Not to say people aren't doing the work, but it's there's not as much out there. Is there a difference in the social primers in terms of which emotion you use that translates to a direction you would go? So like if you wanted to get something done long term, Anger wouldn't be the best primer because it's going to hit people hard and fast, but it might not carry as long as hope or love or something that's a little more. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. And in general, what the, and I'm not going to trend too much into this because I look at the negative emotions. So, um, but the emotions are, are, as you said, they're quick lived. And so, you know, and they're, it's a response to an a, a, a stimulus in the environment immediately, right? So it's like, oh, you know, Stephanie brings up my dog, and I'm like, joy, right? Joy. Um, you do see, so with some emotion, when it comes to that initial stage of action, pe- anger is very effective because it is an approach emotion. So you're not going to run away from something if you're angry, but if you're feeling more like, guilt or shame, oftentimes people will move away from that. And sadness, people will move away from. Um, Joy is something that people move toward, but there's not much evidence of that in collective movements. And I think a really interesting question is then looking at, okay, what is it once we get people here, if we've got to piss them off to get them to this place, what do we use to keep them in that place that's not, (laughs) that anger is the driving factor, right? So, and I suspect you're right with hope. You have to, you always have to have hope, but you have to have hope. And that's built into the collective uh, action literature as well. You have to believe that your group will be efficacious and in its cause. And therein, there has to be some amount of hope. Otherwise, what's the point, right? Yeah. Well, it feels like that's where we are right now is both sides, at least political wise, they're using hate 
but it's a constant repriming of hate. It's every day there's a new thing to hate. Every day there's a new thing to be mad at. And it, we're just going to keep re-upping that way. Yeah. yeah. Which does not seem sustainable. For anybody's mental health, for, for the country at large, it feels like this is a very dangerous road that we are willingly walking down or being led down. You could say, yeah, for sure, and that's the that's the other part with leadership is we buy into it. So that's uh, for, uh, especially in a representative democracy, the onus is on the the people as well, right? And so it's, uh, yeah, I always like to say that. Well, I don't like to say this. This comes from Moscovici, uh, way back when. But every single member, irrespective of their position within a group, has the ability to influence other members in that group, and then you know. I think that's a real powerful thing for us to keep in mind. But it's hard, right, for people to want to go against the group, especially if it's a belief that is not currently popular with who you're around. Mm-hmm. That takes that it takes a lot nowadays. Yeah, and actually, so this is Dom Packer's work. Sorry, I like to throw it, give people their sights when they're due, their references when they're due. But um, his normative conflict model looks at the people who are the most willing to speak out against their group are the people who identify the most strongly with it because they are doing it in the service of that group, right? And so they think you've got to get those people to a place and those people who feel like this group is really important, the traject- the place where they're taking us isn't the right direction. And it's my responsibility to put that information out there. And that, I mean, and you've got to admire those people, but what does that say for the other folks in the group, right? Who are like, don't feel that their position is, is secure within the group. They're going to be far less likely to want to speak out against things that are wrong. I hadn't thought about it that way, that it's out of love that you're you're questioning the narrative because you see where it's going. You're like, we need to turn this ship. We need to start yeah. going back where we were. Yeah. And you see, I said how negative I am, but there's... That was very positive. <laughs> That's the positive. Step yeah. in the right there's, direction. There's a little bit of hope there. Yeah. Well, and also part of that is leadership is incredibly important. So although there are lines of research that look at other group members, perhaps people who are maybe not the most representative of the group, but maybe somebody on the fringes has influence within that group. But by and large, the most influential group member is going to be the leader. And the leader has some special qualities about them. For example, um, we're more forgiving and we're more willing to let the leader do things that maybe are counter-normative or they're things that we wouldn't normally uh, buy into or do. We and allow so, them to be deviants. Yeah. We allow them to to shape us, right? And so who we put in leadership positions is so important for the way in which the entire group will move and not just move, but believe and adopt and start behaving. And so, you know, it's funny. It's always like these conversations seem to end with like, well, you should really vote and you should really think about who the folks are that you're putting in those leadership positions because they really do have the power to change people's hearts and minds in a way that... Um, is really a big deal and that you don't get with any other group members. Yeah. What determines if somebody is going to accept this leader for the group or put forth this leader? Are there determining factors for that? Heck yeah. Now um, we're going to start talking about prototypicality for sure. So um, in the uh, the identity leadership research that um, my colleagues and I do, it's there's a very robust effect that we tend to um, prefer what we call group prototypical leaders, and that is people that we think best embody who we are. 
And this is, so they possess the attributes and also there's an aspirational quality. So they best represent who we are as a group, but also who we want to be as a group. And this became really, really important because I remember some of my students were like, you do all this stuff on prototypical leaders and and non-prototypical leaders because they're interesting as well. But um, on prototypical leaders, but how did the Republican Party vote in Trump? How he's not prototypical of Americans and he's trying to speak for all Americans. And I was like, how? He has an aspirational quality that those people who voted for him buy into. It's not just that he's just like us. He was like them and and is like a lot of his followers in a variety of ways, right? Um, the way that he speaks, the way that he presents himself. But he has some aspirational qualities. Being that rich is an aspirational quality for a lot of Americans. Um, so it is these leaders who can, who have these things that um, that best represent our group, but also best represent what our group wants to be that we tend to look toward. Um, and a big part of that is that sounds as if these leaders are born that way. They're not born that way because groups change, right? And the the things that we want out of our group change, and they also change with respect to what outgroups are present, right? And so it might be that in a specific situation, you're a leader, Nicholas, and you're like, you're a very moderate leader in that group. And we're like, okay, we like this, except in an intergroup context when we think they're getting a little bit close to us and we want to be different than them, that outgroup. We want to demonstrate we're different. This extremist over here, Stephanie, now she's prototypical of the group because she has those aspirational qualities that allow us to move away from them. And I think we've definitely seen that in a lot of elections, right? So, Well, you see that especially with Biden, right? I mean, how many times has he run in the past, never met the mark, and then he runs now and wins? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And the people who are holding, and I don't want to talk too much politics, but the people who are holding Biden accountable to things are like, he's not doing a good job on this or this. It's those things that from the left that they feel that he's not doing a good job on that are more moderate decisions, right? So, yes. Well, and you can think back to when we had this really big divide within the Democratic Party looking at folks who were Bernie folks and then folks who were looking for more moderate candidates. In that context, you had really high levels of polarization in terms of what was happening with extremism on the right. And so in those contexts, you saw a huge swath of Democrats lean in towards Bernie because in that moment, he was that aspirational, more extreme, more left-leaning candidate that we thought maybe could do something in this really highly contentious context in a group. Um, yeah, I think what one of the other bits, though, and you saw that with the way in which Clinton um, spoke is that she was very, she realized that. It's clear that she realized that, and she made the divide between her and Trump quite big, which, um, you know, and between the Democratic and the Republican Party quite big. That's what's really interesting about, you know, the lead-up to elections, right, is uh, the lead-up to elections in that primary situation, the the people that we vote for are, it benefits them to be extreme in that situation. And then we used to live in a place where then you have the trend back towards moderation, but we'll see in 2024. So, you know. Do you think we're going to trend back towards the middle or do you think we have a deeper route down polarization to go through before we get there? Yeah. 
That's a good question, and I say I, I, I don't make predictions about elections. I was literally going to say, this is when she's going to say I don't make predictions yeah, about elections. I don't make predictions about elections. That's yeah, kind of like, let me check yeah. my magic eight ball. Yeah, here but, but I, could, I could tell you what the, the data say in the lead up, and um, right now, so our last, uh, our, our biggest uh, data set that we have that's, co- that's collected most recently, right now it looks pretty damn polarized on both sides without a trend toward moderation. So, um, and that that is their preference. And we are seeing some interesting things is that like some, there are folks on the Democratic side who are really, because I think a lot of uh, Democrats when Biden got elected were like, this dude's not progressive enough for us, right? And then you do see this trend in some of the data where you have people who are like, oh, Biden is allowing us to polarize away from them, which I thought, ah, this is fascinating. So I need to dig more into that. And so what is the difference between a non-prototypical leader then? Um, well, we have the way that we manipulate these things. So we do experimental manipulations in which we, you know, randomly assign people to conditions of prototypical versus non-prototypical leaders. Um, in general, I think you see this more in a candidate situation versus a new type of leader, but someone who is less prototypical or more peripheral of a group is somebody who doesn't really, they don't really have the attributes that we think represent who we are, right? So if we have, you take, we're not going to, we won't use a political example this time. Let's use the social identity lab. Okay. So if we say, what is the features of our group that we share in common, that we also think are special and unique is we know the theory really well. We're all really hard workers. Um, We're nice people. Everybody likes dogs. There's rules to get into this lab. You got to like dogs. Okay. It's not a bad rule to have. It's not a bad rule to have, right? Um, so we have all of these things, but then we see, hmm, this person's not very hardworking. They don't really know the theory type of thing. Um, I don't really think they represent who we are. That's someone who's going to be less prototypical. And you can see how if we were to have an election in our lab, which would be really weird, um, but if we were, the person who embodies the attributes that we think best describe us are the person we're going to go for in that situation. But in a study, uh, what was it, our 2012 paper, so the Rastadel paper, we did find that um, in conditions of high uncertainty, sometimes that prototypical leader advantage will be weakened or go away. And so our explanation for that finding was sometimes you're just looking for leadership per se. And I do believe that there are situations in which non-prototypical leaders can um, rise up the ranks. Now, one way for that is it depends on what you're talking about by like prototypicality, right? Um, And so are they non-prototypical if we're just sitting around here and we're not thinking about any outgroups? Are they non-prototypical in this situation? Sure. But is there a situation in which that person who's kind of fringy then moves us away from an outgroup? Now that person's more prototypical. So you have that as a context as well. And then there's the lovely research that comes out of Moscovici and then all of his, uh, you know, all of the folks who came after Moscovici on minority influence and looking at times in which you have... um, you can have minority leaders that research doesn't necessarily focus on minority leaders, but um, minority groups when they can come and actually get majority support and drive social change. And that's really cool research too. So I always think the, although we study prototypical leaders and we find that prototypical leader advantage, I'm really interested 
in the peripheral people. I've always been interested in those folks and then how they they have the ability to change the group. And then you get it, you bring in deviants and all of that type of stuff. And now we're now we have a good afternoon going. Well, it's like <laughs> an interesting story, right? The underdog yeah. coming out of left field. How did they win? Where did they come from? Yeah. Yeah. And then and their ability to change the group, right? Because if you think you put this in the minority influence context, you think, well, the status quo is comfortable for the people who are in those high status positions, right? So who's motivated to change the group and under what conditions are those people who come from minority positions, under what conditions are they going to be able to drive the social change that occurs? And that's, that, I think that's fascinating. Do groups always tend extreme over a long enough timeline or can they stay moderate or is it obviously dependent on a number of different factors? Yeah, we, we always say context is key, right? And so it, it depends on the context. And um, if in a competitive environment, um, typically you see that movement towards extreme, right? And then we live in a time in which our, some of our leaders are really good at highlighting the competition. Again, we go back to the, like, you know, the uh, populist rhetoric and all of that types of stuff. And driving the sense that we really need to move away from them. But there are some times when we're not necessarily thinking about that, right? And then you get that sense of maybe, oh yeah, there's, sorry, I was going to cite some more research. I'm like, oh, I got this other <laughs> line of research, but, um, but uh, then I forgot it. Oh yeah. So um, creating a sense of, and this is where you get the like relational identities coming up. If you have, if you are able to describe a context in which um, we're able to maintain our identities because it's important. We don't want to. We don't want to put a situation in which, like, you know, we're all the same. That's very threatening to people because we want to be kind of unique, right? It's important for us. So you don't want to do that to people. You want to maintain their distinct identities, but say, for us to make it, we need them, and these are the things that we respect, and this is the things that we do together. So it creates what the um, well, Brewer originally coined the term, and then the um, intergroup uh, leadership folks came up as relational identities between the groups, which allow them to maintain distinct identities, but also to have some uh, some places where they meet and some mutual common ground. And if you can get to a context with that, that'd be real cool. Well, it seems like that's, I mean, that's an interesting concept, because if you take current social movements today, it seems like there's a trend towards a greater division and almost a, you want to be more part of the group than the individual you want to almost get lost in who you surround yourself with so that you can say oh, okay i'm not this group i'm blm or i'm part of the lgbtq movement or antifa or the far-right extremist group like pick a group it's almost like they don't want to be the individual they want to be this cluster and I think that also speaks to this idea of like effective allyship. So some of the work that's being done by some of the graduate students in the lab looking at collective action has touched on some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. And um, also we'll, we'll throw uh, Radke's work out there because her work is real cool too. Yeah. But I mean, it's about, it's about effective allyship, right? So like we've all been in a situation where let's say we're at some sort of a, a social movement and there's been somebody there that just kind of doesn't get it. And they're like, oh yes, I know exactly what your struggle is because I am, you know, low income or whatever it is, right? So this person who just doesn't get it is isn't connected right and so that's a context where you're saying we are the same our experiences are the same and that gets at this idea of a really threatening experience for the folks who are in that movement because they're like no our experiences are fundamentally different right and so it's creating this common sense of um 
bond over the things that have happened for, let's say, two separate movements like BLM or LGBTQ activists, Um, because those experiences are fundamentally different, but there is some shared challenges and some shared experience. And you have shared identities within those groups as well. And shared, yeah, identities within the groups. And so creating that link is really important without, you know, saying that, oh, yes, in order to do this, we have to lump into one giant group because that, that doesn't make people feel good either. So there's almost like an inflection point where if the group persona becomes too great, where it casts a shadow over the individual, you're going to revolt against that. Oh, well, that's an interesting one. That sounds like it comes out of uh, Brewer's optimal distinctiveness theory to a little bit. And so uh, her work and her colleagues' work has shown that um, there's an optimal level of inclusion that we have. Um, with other people and particularly in a group situation. And so we seek assimilation with others, which is similarities, us having things in common, but at the same time, we wanna feel unique, right? And so you have these two competing motives for being in a group and those are actually, and there's an optimal place at which we are most comfortable, where we feel included, where we have those similarities with other people, but we also have a sense of uniqueness. And there are several ways that we can get to that. We can get to that like on the individual level. I can be like in a faculty meeting and say, yeah, you know, I am faculty in the psychology department, but I'm also a former professional athlete, right? So that makes me feel a little bit unique when I can say stuff like that. But groups satisfy that as well. And that's a really interesting place is where you can say, I'm a member of this group. All of us have these things in common. Guess what? We're different and unique from them. Yeah. And so that can also help to satisfy those needs. But if you do end up feeling over included within the group, that's when people get uncomfortable and you can get levels of disidentification with the group. Where does the concept of a social cachet come into play? You hear that a lot with we're going to go back to the LGBTQ movement for a second with girls who are identifying as trans, predominantly young teen girls, where historically it's been men identifying that. And there was this point where it switched and now it's predominantly young girls and it seems to be clustered around certain groups. So these groups of girls in this, in these schools will identify and they might grow out of it. They might not, but it, it seems like it's almost this social contagion is how I've been, how it's been referred to me. Yeah, I mean... Because it's like an influence thing at some point, right? Where you get to be a part of this marginalized group and there's a little weight that carries that. Almost like if you're a sports star, you could say, oh yeah, I'm an NBA player. There's a little cachet to that. Yeah, so I think you're talking about it, like going at it towards a self-concept clarity. It can help me to clarify um, my self-concept and the knowledge that I have about self and like satisfy some of those uniqueness things. I do think it's important when we're talking about identities Um, particularly with uh, marginalized identities that it's like, you know, we attempt, we see people the way that they want to be seen and um, different trends and where people come from originally are likely going to change with the changing nature of society as well. And so I've had this conversation with a few folks who will say like, we're getting more people who are adopting this identity. I'm like, well, are they adopting it or is that their identity? Right. And so we, it's what, it's what they are using to inform the self-concept, what they're using for that identity that I think is an important. And so I don't know, I don't know how else to talk about that. I mean, I think, I think that, that that idea comes from a place of believing that there's permeability within some of those groups. And I think a lot of these no, marginalized groups experience 
challenges because their groups are fundamentally not permeable, right? You can't just join and leave at will. It is who you are. It's a part of yourself. And so and in some instances, it's the stuff that you're born with, right? Um, and so I think... I think we have to be careful again with like marginalized communities because in particular, the vast majority of those are not permeable. You can't just leave. So one of the things we know about social change is that in contexts where the group membership is not permeable, you can't just leave or you don't believe you have the ability to leave a group. That's when we see a lot of social change movements become more successful. For example, let's say that you're a part of like a group that is low income Americans, right? If you believe that you can transcend that group, that you can get out of that situation, that you have individual mobility to leave, you are going to not work on behalf of other low-income folks because there's no reason to because you can you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can get out of it. But if you have the belief system that, no, the system that we live under is fundamentally structured in a way that doesn't allow me to leave this group, that's when you're going to see social change or you're going to see action on behalf of the group. And so I think that there's a really big difference in terms of the type of group we're talking about and when somebody has belief in mobility, their ability to just come in and out of the group, which I don't think. Yeah. And with the, with the identity that they're like what they're deriving from that identity as well, because it might it might be like, oh, well, they can change back and forth psychologically. No. Right. And so psychologically not. And that I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. And if people do decide like, okay, well, I'm going to go back to whatever identity that I hold, then it's like, okay, cool. If that, if they can psychologically do that, um, do what's best for the identity, you know, for the identity of that individual, I guess, but mm-hmm. I don't know how else to. Well, and does uncertainty come into play in that aspect of group adoption? That if you're not secure in who you think you are and you get accepted by this group, whatever group it is you would be more easily swayed because you're coming from this place of you have a shaky foundation. And so any sort of stability would lend itself to your current position. Yeah, yeah that's 100% what the theory talks about. Yeah. And what we've shown since all of the all of the research that I get to do on that. Yeah, for sure. It's I, I'm coming from this. I've read this book. It was called Irreversible Damage by Abigail Schreier. I'm not sure if either of you are familiar uh, with yeah, it. Yeah, I've heard of it. Um, it's a good book. I don't know. I haven't read it. Okay. No, I, a, I have heard of it. It's yeah. a very interesting book. As someone who is not a part of that community or doesn't really know a whole lot about the community, it was just an interesting read. And she talks, she takes the perspective that a lot of it seems to be, that's where I got social contagion from. Yeah. She is under that belief that it's, to some extent, a social contagion where these influence, influenceable, these people who can be easily influenced are falling into that. Mm-hmm. And that's where the social cachet comes from, that some of these children are trans and are going down that path. Some of these don't have a sense of self and are lost and are going through these hormonal changes and discovering themselves like kids do. And they find a home in this group and then at some point may or may not regret that. And it just gets a little shaky. Yeah, I see what you're saying on that one. And um yeah, and so I think that the research is going to be supportive of that. And then you have, because it's it's like it's the motivation for the for the group, right? And as you said, some people this this is their identity, and then also you have the people who latch on to identities that aren't theirs. And you see this with allyship. That was something that Stephanie had brought up. Is like, ooh, if I go out and I advocate for this other group, this gives me this like identity. This is who I'm wholeheartedly this. 
but I'm doing it for me, right? I'm not doing it on behalf of the person who's marginalized. So I'm actually taking from them. That's a, a you know, a, a fully different motivation than someone who is, I am a part of this community because this is who I am. Yeah. And so for sure. And I think, and um, the research should be supportive of this is that for folks who have that sense of, I'm really uncertain of who I am, um, I can gain a sense of uh, identity from this group, then people latch on to groups. Sure. And you see that with all sorts of extremes. You see that with, you know, the FBI informants who coerce somebody into blowing up a bomb because it's this lost guy that doesn't have anything going for him and he doesn't have any friends and he's isolated and he just gets radicalized yeah. and then does this thing because he thinks, hey, if I do this, these people are going to like me. I'm going to belong somewhere. That's the whole thing with like incel culture, right? Is they're all down this rabbit hole and they're together, but they're not getting laid and they don't need to get laid because they've got each other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got, we've got some research that'll be coming down the pipeline on some incel stuff for sure. And, and you also think of the, you know, the, the shared grievances that they can talk about. Right. And that I think helps to hold them together and the outgroups are so freaking clear for incels. So. Yeah, Can you talk a, a little bit about that? I well, don't want to. Oh, yeah. Um, it, because it's not, um, it won't be published for a little bit. It's uh, one of my current graduate students um, and I are working on it. So I probably shouldn't say too keep much. Keep it hushed. Yeah, keep it a little. Don't want anybody to jump me but or, <laughs> or to jump Cozy's work. But um, yeah, so, but it, the model for that is exactly how you say, and like this, again, this idea of shared grievance and saying, you're getting shit on too let's get together and work on that. And I think that that's really problematic. And that's a model that we see for almost all extremist groups. Are, is there a varying degree of cohesion depending on what the unifying factor is? Like if, every, if I'm part of a group that's an incel group and we're all not getting laid and we all feel like the world's against us, are we going to be a closer knit group than say a, a group based on race or visual aspects? For like the belief in the power of hard work and these more abstract ideas? Yeah. So when you use abstract, yes. Um, groups that are more abstract that are um, that are not well defined, they don't provide the same level of they don't have the uncertainty reducing qualities that we seek. Right. Um, and they don't have the ability to help us to tell us who we are in situations. So groups that are really ambiguous about who's a member of this group. Any, any old person could be a member of this group. That's not super satisfying. It's not super satisfying if we don't know the boundaries of the group. It's not super satisfying if we don't know what the group norms are. But particularly in the case when, um, you know, you have people experiencing uncertainty, it's those groups that clearly define norms, right? Those become incredibly attractive. But they have to have gotten to the person first, right? Does that sort of make sense? So you need some sort of exclusivity to make you want to be a part of it. 100%. Or the or the perception of exclusivity, right? So it doesn't even have to be. I mean, really with incel culture, I don't I don't know a whole lot, whole lot about the norms around that, but from my understanding is you could leave incel culture. You could you could just, you know, begin Get laid. Yeah, yeah, begin <laughs> begin mating i don't know <laughs> i don't know you could do something that's different than like what you're already doing so like that's exclusive for a few reasons right you have people who are like no i'm choosing to be in this group which is powerful in its own right and might present some feelings of exclusivity but in addition to that you've put yourself in a position where you could leave 
right? You could no longer be a part of that group. So perhaps because of the fact that it's permeable, you might actually, I would guess, work even harder to, to establish yourself as a, a more prototypical member of that group in comparison to a group where you're just in it by de facto, right? You're just a part of that group, right? I don't know if that's true per se. Is that permeability research, but... a strong indicator of cohesion? Like if it's race, obviously you can't just not be the race that you were born. So were you just inherently more close-knit? Um, depends on the, well, it depends on a couple. Now we're going to old school social identity theory. We'll pull out some Taj Fell and Turner, 1979. Um, so depends on a couple of other things um, with permeability there. So um, if... For it to lead to high levels of group identification, um, you have, if you're, if you're, how do I want to say this? If your identity is tethered to that of the collective and there's no way for you to move out, you do, uh, you will feel high levels of group identification, right? Because you have to, you can't gain a positive sense of identity from leaving that group. Now, you do have instances where some people, um, basically wear their identities on their body, right? But they psychologically disidentify because they think, you know what? I'm the exception to the rule here, right? And so you can get a level of psychological identification um, from groups or people who are walking around. It's like, I identify as a woman. I'm like, yeah, yeah, my male colleagues, they make more money than me. I don't know if that's true or not in my department. Actually, I can tell all of our salaries are online. So um, some of them do, some of them don't. Um, but so, but I can say, you know what? I, I just don't really think about being a woman very often. I'm not tethered to that as part of my identity. It's I'm gaining my identity from being an, uh, an academic, from being an athlete or whatever the case is. I just kind of psychologically disidentify as a woman. Then you're not going to see me want to do anything to improve the lot for all women, right? Or to improve the position of all women. Does that kind of make sense? And so you have you don't necessarily have to have uh, that portion in place. Like you can, you can still psychologically disidentify with a group, even if it's you feel like it's all over your body. Yeah, that would track, right? Because you have people that will revolt against a group that they're a part of that isn't permeable in favor of trying to join this other group, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in favor of trying to join that other group or even thinking like, oh yeah, well... All other women are like this, but I'm not like that. I'm exceptional in this case, so I can be more like the guys in this situation. Well, and it comes down to like your perception is your reality, and that's something that transcends across many different disciplines in social psych. I mean, it doesn't matter if the group is or is not fundamentally permeable. I mean, there are many people in poverty in the United States that based on the structure of the how things are set up, they're probably not going to be as rich as Donald Trump. I mean, statistically, it's so, so, so unlikely, right? But if they believe that that identity is something that they can transcend, that they can move through, then that's all that really matters in terms of their behavior. And that's true with many other things when it comes to voting behavior. If there's a, a belief system in place, it doesn't matter what the reality is if the person has bought into it and they, they believe it to be true. Yeah, and... It also so the other the other piece of that the other part of the social context that is really important is the legitimacy the perceived legitimacy of the nature of the intergroup relations. So when we're talking about um, you know uh, groups that are being subordinated or feel that they're being subordinated, you have some members of groups who say, 
yeah, but we kind of deserve this, right? And that's a scary position for some of those groups. That's a scary position because those people aren't going to be willing to do anything on behalf of the collective. And those people are going to be the people who are like, all right, if uh, the way we're being treated is legitimate and I can kind of side with the other, you know, or the people who are dominant, then you have that level of uh, exit or you have that psychological sense of what well, you get the social mobility aspect of it as well. Um, yeah, so I, I needed to put in the legitimacy factor for social identity theory because it's also really important. Well, and you can get that with abusive relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Where it becomes this habitual cycle and it's not, oh, this person is just beating on me and I don't deserve it. It's, oh, I did this thing so they were right to hit me because And then you, do, you don't have the people who leave in that, like, in that horrific situation for sure. So, And then when you have the people who believe, like, this is illegitimate. The way that we are being treated is not okay, right? And the way that society is structured does not allow us to do anything about it because it's you have impermeable boundaries. Then now we work as a group and then you get that um, that sense of drives towards collective action and stuff like that. So with radical groups, particularly, do they start out as radical or do they have these leaders that arise from the fringe that just keep moving the group in that direction? How does that track? Um I think it I think it's a little bit of both, right? Um, and it because the the way that all groups are structured and like in large groups, you have subgroups within them, and then you can have competition with subgroups that are like, ooh, we're gonna be more and more this way, right? So you have this also this other comparison with these kind of within subgroups comparisons as well. So um, and then the ability to attract new members to that is gonna be important. So I, I don't think all groups start naturally start off as extremists, but there are reasons for which they will go to the extremes for sure. Can you identify the groups that will tend in that direction? Is there like, any research on that? Like before it gets that Yeah, way? so like you can look at a group and say, oh, 10 years time, this group is, it's going to get a little dicey. I Or is that a little hard? That's like your magic eight ball guess again. I mean, yes, but I also think that all groups... Because we're all driven by the same mechanisms, it really, and that's one of the things that's so powerful about social identity theory, is it really doesn't matter what specific group you're talking about. Those mechanisms that we've seen historically and when we experimentally test this stuff, all, all people, all groups are susceptible to those same mechanisms. So those same conditions that we've described in terms of intergroup competition or those same conditions we've described in terms of a leader who's moving things um, in the context of that really high threat environment, all of those things can happen to, to any group. To any, any group so really. it's like you have the same foundation across the board and you just have this different facade. Like, yeah. oh, we're a different group, but really at the at the base level, it, we're all succumbing to the same principles. The process, yeah. the processes are the same, but it, you, the norms are different within the groups. The things that make us special, unique, different from them uh, are they they are the things that make us different. And so you have the the norms that are different, but the processes driving those things are the same. Can I ask, just because we've talked about it a lot, can you define what social identity theory is for people that don't know? Yeah, it's well, it originally started off as a broad theory. I thought you were going to take notes and then nope. you're getting your water bottles. Like, we're, we're not in class. Um, uh, yes, so, there will be an exam on this. Yes. So be prepared. 
gosh. Good exam taker. Jokes right on there. me. This is like my orals for <laughs> like preparing for oral exam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so social identity theory um, was uh, originally started as a broad theory uh, that gets at intergroup relations. So, and, and in doing so, it it was really important to take into account the uh, structural factors and um, the nature of the relationships between groups to um, to get at intergroup relations. And so that's when we brought up the um, permeability and the legitimacy of the status relations and things like that. And then um, not too long after that, um, you had the social identity theory. I'm doing history right now. Um, you have the social identity theory of the group, which is self-categorization. And this is where it brings in the social influence processes and the mechanisms that get people to identify with groups. Um, and then after this, so originally starting off just to say, this is why groups attack each other, right? So starting off with something like that, but then you get, okay, this is what people get out of their groups. This is the, and that was, that was present in the original papers as well, but this is what people get out of their groups. This is why people are in these groups. These are the mechanisms that lead them to that identification. And then you, you then have a point in which, okay, this is what people do with those identities. And this is how people polarize those identities. These are, you get the um, rise of social identity theorists starting to study leadership and things like that to take leadership from being, you know, the great man theory of leadership and say, oh no, leadership is truly a group process. You have a reciprocal relationship between, you know, the leader and the group, right? So the leader in the group prototype, but also the leader and the members of that group. So the fact, again, that we have leaders is because we support those leaders. And so taking it away from, again, the individual differences. And then you have social identity theory looking at um, extremism, for example, and how these these same mechanisms that lead to group identification, that lead for people to feel uh, satisfied within their groups are also things that can lead to extremism. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty broad theory, but starts off uh, grounded in the nature of the relationships between um, groups and societies. And how did you both get started? And I mean, obviously you have your own stories, but how did you get started in this field? Like why social psychology? I mean, obviously it's very interesting, at least sitting over here, I'm fascinated. Yeah. So uh, I can see the appeal from an outside perspective. Yeah. So, um, I mean, if I go way back, like I looked through my notes from high school in my sociology class and I'm like, dude, I was a social identity theorist before I knew it. Cause I like the stuff I pulled out of, uh, of, uh, sociology, but, um, and then when I was in high school, it was like, I want to go be a physics major and study black holes. And then I was told girls aren't so great at math, you know, and I didn't have the language to say that's sexist. <laughs> so I thought psychology came to Humboldt, um, took a few psych classes and did not like them. I was like, this is not for me because I thought like most and most uh, students who start off in psychology are like, I'm going to be a therapist. And quickly, I'm not going to be, that's not for me. I am glad that there are people who are so smart and so well-trained and can, can do that, but that's not me. And then um, I took a stats class in psychology, and I was like, this is really cool. And then started working in a research lab with a social psychologist, um, took a research methods class and was like, oh yeah, this is me, took a social psychology class, this is me, took a psych of prejudice class, which is tends to be taught from social psychology. Yes, this is all of it. So applied to PhD programs. And um, although I'd heard of the, the of social identity theory 
um, before that one of my mentors at Humboldt said, hey, I think you should apply to um, Claremont Graduate University. Mike Hogg's going to be there. And um, he's he's a social identity theory guy. And I like, knew of his work and applied to work with him. And so I was indoctrinated into the framework. See, yeah, it works on all levels because <laughs> social identity people It's almost are, like a pyramid scheme. We're just going to keep bringing people it, in. And yeah. See, I keep bringing them in, producing them. Yeah, yeah. so. Well, and really that that ties nicely to the way in which I started to become interested is because I, you know, at first I was at community college for years. I was an art major. I was like doing uh, figure sculpting, which is where you go into a room you and were like really uncertain about you. Just kidding. No, actually <laughs> I had it all figured out. Thanks. Um, and then um, I, you know, I got into Humboldt State and so I came and I started working in a variety of different research labs. Um, and then I had one of my instructors, Dr. Gold, who was also, I believe your thesis master or your uh, yeah, undergraduate yeah, he, was, he was my advisor when I was an undergrad yeah. yeah um so the same person you know I started working with him and you know he you know we were walking from psych of prejudice one day and he's like you know you're really he called me PhD material which like from somebody who grew up in poverty who never saw themselves as a student never saw themselves even going to university first gen all of that it was so huge I like called my family I was like Dr. Gold said I'm PhD material and you know and then you know I met I got in contact with Amber, after I started working in the master's program. Because you have my social psych class. Yes. And remember what I tell students on the first day of my social psych class? I say, most of you don't want to be here because I'm your last resort. You think this is a class on how to make friends. By the end of this class, I'm going to sell three quarters of you on social psychology at least. Because I study social empathy. So, yeah, I mean, really, that's what it was is I started taking her class and then she's like, hey, you should really come to lab meetings. And then, of course, I just got full wholeheartedly sucked into it. And really, I mean, it's it's one of those theories that isn't tied to a particular aspect of like human existence to me, because sometimes like some of the interpersonal stuff, it's like, oh, I, I do relationships or, oh, I do this one piece, but or like a specific type of relationships. Yeah, exactly. So it's a it's real specific. But what's so lovely about this is social identity theory and the framework that it provides gives you a means for understanding the world broadly as things change, because it is context specific, but the mechanisms don't change. And so for me, that's the thing that's really inspiring is no matter what's happening in the world, we have a framework for understanding it. Hence, it reduces our self uncertainty, because during the <laughs> pandemic, when everybody was panicking, we had the answers, we right? Had the, yeah. <laughs> we had a means for understanding and creating structure when there wasn't any. And so I'm really grateful for for that as well and to, yeah. to kind of have those tools. And the the research out there is so diverse, like the application of it is so diverse. So you have folks who do um, research on, um, you know, the extremist stuff, which I do a lot of that. Um, some of my colleagues do a lot of that. You have leadership, but you have people who look at um, – social identity and therapeutic groups, right? And how you can use um, this this basic model of social identity theory for depression reduction and things like that. Um, you have, uh, there's a new line of research, uh, relatively new that looks at um, social identity and um, people and, and people with disabilities. So in those communities, um, just all across the board, there's a whole bunch of social identity and health stuff coming out and, um, you know, just all over the place. And I think it's 
I think sports would be a great place for it too. And there are some folks who do um, leadership work from a social identity perspective in athletics, which I think is pretty neat. So it's uh, it's just really, really applicable. And like Stephanie said, if you join, sometimes I think most people feel a little bit uncomfortable when they're in a new situation and they don't know anybody. And then that's when people start taking out their phones and pretending like they're talking to their friends and stuff. I know. I just I'm actually looking at the news when I do that because I want to look cool. But the thing that protects me in all of those situations is I'm like, oh, this is why I'm feeling like this. And this is why you're treating me this way. <laughs> so I can like fall back on the knowledge that I have to be like, yeah, at least I can intellectualize this situation. And I think that's also how a lot of researchers who do this kind of work cope with it, right? So like a lot of the stuff that we look at is ugly, really, really ugly, horrible things that have drastic, drastic impacts on people's lives. And I think, yeah, that ability to kind of separate yourself from the work and intellectualize it a little bit and like think about it in the context of mechanisms and prototypes makes it a little bit more digestible. And you are doing something to to learn more about why this stuff happens in the hopes that that we can, you know, make some positive impacts on the world, which and, is huge. And there is the the positive stuff. I always am like, just remember to talk about the positive stuff, Amber, like the recovery group stuff, I think is super interesting. And yeah, and really in using leadership for positive, because, you know, I, when I was, uh, when I was an athlete, like the, I was doing a team sport and it was really easy for me to see when we when we started to get bad, it was because of the breakdown of leadership within the group. And so I had a talk with our team director and I was like, hey, this is what's going on. And she said, uh, can you talk to the team? Absolutely. I was I was in grad school at the time. So it was like, yes, I can absolutely do this. And you see that application of it in ways that can be very positive as well. So like, who are you going to appoint to a leadership position if you're doing appointed leadership? Who's that person can, can, can be? Is it the person with the strongest personality? Is that always the best thing to do, right? <laughs> on our team. Yes. Well, it's interesting because you have these, an almost very realistic set of tools that you can use because you understand the underlying principles. Mm -hmm. I mean, how we're all part of so many different groups. You get yeah. to look at it and say, oh, I'm doing this because of this, or I'm succumbing to these influences. Like you get a very actionable set of things that you can do when you understand what's really going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's it's so fun. I mean, I, I was saying this earlier. I was like... Friday, I like to call it Amber Friday, and um, that's because I do I try to do what I want on Fridays. And one of the things that's really cool is I get to sit in my office, have some meetings, um, maybe run some data, go derail my students who are working in the lab, and then ha talk research all day long. It's so fun. It's a really fun, fun Friday. Yeah. So when growing pains is like, hey, do you want to come talk about your research this Friday or in a Friday soon? <laughs> Amber's like, yes, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. I really don't want to bother you on your Friday. I'm like, no, this is what I want to be doing. This is perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's an interesting juxtaposition between you two because you had that person say, wow, you were PhD material and you had somebody say, yeah, women in black holes don't really mix. Yeah. But then I did have this, I had the same experience at Humboldt, which is one of the reasons why I was so happy and excited when the job came up here. I had a very, uh, we have very similar backgrounds and I had the, you know, the professor who's like, you just did amazing in my stats class. Will you TA for me? Will you be in my lab? You know what? You should apply to a PhD program. And I'm like, people where I come from don't 
get PhDs. That's not a thing. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, but these people who I respect think I'm smart. This is cool. And then when I got the opportunity to apply for this position, uh, the position that I have now, I was so excited to do that because then you can turn around and pay it back for the people who, you know, are in that situation. And it's really cool. Well, there's something I'm sure you can attest to this. Mm -hmm. There's something really powerful about a professor that actually enjoys and is passionate about what they're doing. I mean, even if you're going into a subject that you might not initially care about, if the professor is enthusiastic, it rubs off on you and you're more engaged and you pay attention more and you like the material more. And one of the things that I think Amber taught me when I started teaching courses is that the vast majority of what you do is, yes, it's being organized. Yes, it's knowing what you're talking about. Yes, it's being prepared. In fact, over-preparation can sometimes be like the best anecdote to, to nervousness or whatever it is that you're teaching. Um, but really, the vast majority of it is just being an inspirational person, right? So like making people feel like they are capable, they are smart, that they can do this, and that they should also be interested in this stuff because it's wicked cool, right? So, I mean, I think that's part of it, right? Like getting somebody, you know, um, helping them sort of discover the same things that kind of light you on fire about what you're talking about. Um, and that's huge. And it's, and it shines. It really, it, you can it see it. It makes a difference. Yeah. It makes a very tangible difference. Yeah. It's fun. School is cool, folks. <laughs> yeah. If there was a subtle plug for going to school, right? It's yeah. like, yeah, guys, yeah. it's going to be great. <laughs> I have to ask, you guys did some research on it was isolation and falling into conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And I believe you guys were talking about specifically mask usage in that. Did, so did we do? That was one of the, the measurements that we took. It wasn't the like primary component. Basically our question was in this context of COVID-19, when somebody feels self uncertain, so uncertain about who they are in the world, are they more willing to believe, adopt, join into these conspiracy groups? And so one of the things that I did with that is we um, primed people to feel uncertain or to not feel uncertain. Um, and we did that not by our regular prime where we say, you know, tell me about the things that make you feel uncertain. But um, we got at it by making them feel socially isolated. So think about a time when you felt most disconnected and isolated from the people that you care about in your life during COVID. And this right? was like late, as we started like late spring, early summer of 2020 when it was like. Oh, really fresh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that we do this is instead of just having people think about it, we ask them to write about it. Um, and one of the things that's so powerful about that is as, you know, you get this data in, you start to see the stuff that people are writing in these write-in boxes about what's making them feel isolated from their family. You had people saying, you know, my wife and kids are in the other room, but since I have COVID, I can't, I can't see them or touch them or talk to them. And it was just like really so sad, intense stuff. Yeah. But anyway, um, for science, right? So we made people feel horrible, um, either really isolated and uncertain or not. And then I presented them with fictitious Facebook pages. One of them was just like a regular support group saying, hey, you know, during COVID, we all have to, you know, stick together. Here's some information from the CDC. And then we created a fictitious Facebook page that had COVID-19 conspiracy information. So it was basically an identical page, except for one of them was talking about, you know, the real origin of COVID was made in a lab. And here's some links to some less reputable sources that were clearly conspiracy based. Um, and 
We also measured some stuff afterwards. So how likely were they to identify with the people in the Facebook pages? Um, how likely were they to engage in masking behavior? And how anxious did they feel about the future financially, um, socially, or um, in terms of their health? And what we found was that overall, people were far more willing to identify with the non-conspiracy group, which was a great thing to find. Um, but what we did find was that um, the folks who identified with that conspiracy group, by and large, it was the folks who felt most uncertain and as a function of how much they supported Donald Trump in that context. So we found this really intense effect where they're far more likely to believe and support in the conspiracy group. But in that context, it was only a function of whether or not they had support for Donald Trump and his leadership, which goes back to some of the conversations we had about the importance of leadership and how Although we know uncertainty makes people more open to this stuff, they're more open to their group and to their leaders and what their leaders are saying are the things that you should be adopting and believing in. Um, and so that's kind of what we found there. What was funny about that is the university picked up on that and put out a press release. And so that was picked up by Lost Coast Outpost and the local news organization that is flipping my mind. Oh, the, that was the one in Reading, the KRCR. KRCR picked it up. And so we did an interview for that, and the um, it they had this story on Facebook that just had the title, and we got within ten minutes just hundreds and hundreds of comments on the Facebook post, and so naturally as researchers we said, well, we should collect all of this data. It's public, so we scraped all of the Facebook data and we did some qualitative analyses to see like what was happening in those comments, um, and. It was pretty clear that most people didn't actually read the study and like really, you know, look at, they probably didn't even open it. Um, but what we saw was a lot of those same themes of like polarization, feeling threat, a lot of people arguing um, across partisan a lines. A lot of people thinking that I have a large research budget. Yeah. I mean, yeah. There was someone like, you know, these, these people in their big research budget. And she's like, what do you mean? Like... The, the $250 I paid out of my pocket yeah, for my right. data. Yeah, so exactly. Huge. This is purely passion, folks. Yeah. Like, but yeah. but yeah, so so that's some of the work that we did. Um, what came out of that study also, aside from the really cool qualitative analysis, was identifying that folks who were made to feel more isolated also had more anxiety about their health. They also had more anxiety about um, their economic futures. And so... Um, you can think, too, about how feeling isolated can induce other types of uncertainty, not just the type of uncertainty that comes from yourself, but also about the future and your health and those things. And it's it's really important because that study, some of it seems negative, but there's the, here, here I go, being positive. Um, the positive twist to it was that the other half of the prime was making people feel connected, and it worked. And we were able to do this thing, like, think about you know, think about some of your friends or family or people who are important to you, what you're getting out of that. And that worked. And it was like, you can merely just get people. I mean, it, now I'm going to sound all soft and gushy, but um, you, if you remind people of the relationships in their life that they are grateful for, right? So that sense of gratitude, I think is really important and something I, when we were going through that, because of course we're, you know, all of us are working on Zoom at that point, like hating our lives and, and we are the ones who are the privileged ones in that sense for sure. But then seeing those things and being like, oh yeah, I am really grateful for 
my friend who can come sit on my deck with me, like, you know, and like, it's not the ideal situation, but this is what's working in this moment. And using those things to reduce the uncertainties is kind of cool. Yeah. And and demonstrating that experimentally, it does reduce self-uncertainty. So we talk about all the bad things that can happen for folks who are uncertain, but also knowing what helps us to feel more secure in who we are and, and how we're moving forward and how that has implications for, for um, avoiding some of the, the negative stuff that we study. Well, the anxiety, especially, right? How many people got super anxious being locked down and yes. that just became their natural state of being? Now yeah. Just like hyper all the time. And it's still out there for folks too. So, yeah. What I wanted to continue with that was one of my biggest fears with the polarization aspect of today is that with the eroding of once credible sources, I'm afraid that that just tends people down a greater path of conspiracies. Like with you had the mass debate and then you had the Cochrane review and now that is called into question. And then you had the natural immunity versus the effectiveness of the vaccines. And now that has been called into question. And then you had the Twitter files and the government aspect being called into question. Is there any research out there that would track where that goes that, Oh, if you start eroding once credible sources, groups get even more hyperpolarized. I mean, where does that go, right? If you have these institutions that you trust, and we kind of talked about this a little yeah. bit where people are kind of attacking institutions and professors and things like that. Yeah. Does that, does it just keep getting worse? Well, yeah. And so I, I feel like there's a lot to say about that. And I think, I know I'm going to sound political. I don't want to, but I think that the Russian model is really interesting in this situation in which you have, you know, um, news being put out by Russian TV, right? And this, this started a long time ago. So much information being thrown at people that there's this great book that was written, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago or something. It's called like nothing is true and everything is false or something like that. And um, making the point that so much stuff was put out as news that people don't know what is a fact. And so that level of confusion that goes from that is like, fuck it, we're just going to buy into all of it at this point because I don't have the the tools to decipher what is correct and what isn't correct. And I, I think that could be one of the concerns when you are, especially when you have people saying, oh, this, this information that you're getting is conflicting with the previous stuff about vaccines that you got is conflicts with that. They clearly don't know what they're talking about. And it's like, these are the best scientists in the world, people. But when we start from different sources of information, right, and it's, this is why we say perception is reality, and why I always tell people the thought processes are the same on whatever side you're on, but the sources of the information are different. And when we can't listen to the sources on both sides in a critical fashion, which a lot of people are unwilling to do, that's that's like the the real danger, right? Yeah. So I know that wasn't like a perfect answer, but it was just like thought a lot about this. And we ha we see models of where, you know, information has been taken to extremes and put out there and just confuse the hell out of people to where it's like, what do we do with this? Right. And then also the sense of that polarization that continues to occur because of the different sources of information. Well, and part of that, too, is and I think you were alluding to it, too, but cognitively, there's so much information being pushed at us all of the time. I mean, think about those periods of time, especially during the pandemic, where your phone was going off with a new crisis, like every 45 seconds, it felt like. And so there's so much information to sift through that even the most diligent person 
would have a full-time plus job just trying to understand what the heck was going on because there's so many new things happening. And so that, again, highlights sort of the importance of the groups that we're a part of, because oftentimes we don't look at each source and make a logical evaluation, although we like to believe that we do. Um, we oftentimes don't. Um, and so one of the ways that we get around that cognitively is looking at what our other group members are doing, what they're believing, right? And so if a leader is saying, we don't believe, you know, this science that's coming out, cognitively, that's the easiest and less uncertainty inducing thing to do is to just go with that, right? And just be like, yep, that's what I believe too. And, you know. and not just go with it, but actually think about that argument, but that argument alone. So you get this directed form of um, information processing that it's like, it's not that it's thoughtless. I'm only thinking about this one thing and I'm not, I do, I'm not getting the exposure. And what we know is the more in depth our level of processing is with incoming information, the more it sticks and the more it sticks for long periods of time. So, Yeah. Well, and it's a way of filtering, right? Somebody's already filtered it for you. So all you have to do is focus on that smaller subset of the information. And unfortunately, the people who are doing the filtering aren't always maybe the most trustworthy people who should be doing that filtering on a mass scale for folks. Well, it plays into your biases, right? You pick the one news organization that you love, and then you just skim the headlines. You don't pay attention to anything that's underneath that, and you've got all the information you need. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. and they have a graph? Oh, my God. This must be the best science I've ever seen. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and then MRI scan. Look at that brain. That's Was so it scientific. I have a thing, I have a bone to pick with pie charts. It is the least useful way to visualize your data, but is the only thing that pretty much any organization that I've worked at, that's what they want. They're like, oh, can you give us a pie chart? Like, no, Tell us how you no. Really feel about pie charts. You can't have a pie chart. You can have a bar graph, error bars too. You'll yeah. like it. Heck yeah. <laughs> well, and we kind of talked about this, I think it was off air about the headline problem that we face today especially yeah. with research news organizations just find that one thing that sticks and then blast it out there and then it's like oh well that wasn't necessarily the whole story and now millions of people just read that one line yeah absolutely and like because in general i'm well aware that nobody knows who i am but if something goes out public i get very very nervous about how my words are used because i you know, it's not just it's not just my research, but it's what people take from that research. And it's also my colleagues research as well. So I have a sense of like, what are you going to ask me about? You know, because I just I want to make sure that it's represented because you do see how things are miscommunicated all of the time. And called into question all of the time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other part. And especially you do some of this research, there can be a sense of like, oh, people are if, People might not like me or what they think I represent because of this or think that I am a biased person because of this. And it's like, I'm just giving you what the data said, right? So, Which is weird that people would try to pick a bone with you about what is in the data. Like, yeah. I didn't control the data. I just, yeah. I structured it and we ran the test and this is what it yeah. said. Yeah, yeah. Run it yourself if you want. So, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yes. That's one of the interesting things about publishing research, right, mm -hmm. is that you're just putting this information out there and then people can do whatever they want with it once it leaves your hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, and then also like most people don't get to read most of the research that we publish too. It's like somebody has to do some combing through some likely obscure academic journals to be able to find it unless you are able to, you know, do a podcast and talk about your research in that fashion. Um, which by the way, when we made KRCR, 
the folks who know me in Trinity County were like, we saw you on the news. So <laughs> I'm from Trinity County. So they were very excited. Well, I mean, yeah, you said it right. How many people are actually reading through the actual research and taking a dive into an academic journal and saying, okay, what? Let's actually look at this study. Let's see how they ran it. Yeah, for and and also for good and for bad because there's a there are there are articles out there that are published that aren't published in good journals, right? And if those make the media, that's also very problematic because it's like you know they didn't do the stats right or there was a confound in their design. It supported exactly what they wanted it to support because they did some level of p-hacking or something else that's unethical and that is what gets traction that's what people end up buying into because it has a sexy title but we need to have the tools to say oh this is inappropriate i mean that's why stats are so cool like statistics is pretty cool and you know teaching it being a student in it is really cool because then you're you're prepared when you see the stuff in the media and you're like uh-uh that doesn't work or yeah, that's a nice analysis. I'm into that. So, How often does faulty research actually make it out into a journal? Is that pretty common, fairly common, common uh, enough that it is a problem? Um, I, I don't think it's that big of a problem. Um, and so there's definitely heated debates in social psychology. Um, we come down really hard on ourselves and we're a bunch of norm enforcers. And so, um, you know, there's been debates over the years about what are the problematic areas in um, the science. And Is that like a hard science versus soft science kind of debate? So you'd think, but actually the same flaws that we see with, um, you know, for a bit, people were on and on and on about the replication crisis. And it's like, well, s some studies, uh, classic studies and social psychology aren't replicating. And um, well, there are studies in all fields, regardless of its hard science, soft science, somewhere in the middle that don't replicate. And usually there's another variable involved. Um, I think one of the things that um, I'm really appreciative of in social psychology is having the opportunity to contribute to the peer review process. So getting to be an associate editor at a journal and seeing, oh, it's people like me who are, I'm not going to say gatekeeping because it's oftentimes not gatekeeping, but this is, this is how the decisions are made at the peer review level. And then from what I've seen, I, I'm very confident in the stuff that we put out there, but also confident in the people, uh, some of the people reading it who can come back and be like, did you not see that? Right. And then having a journal that is really open to saying, oh yeah, that was a misprint and then changing, changing stuff like that. And so I've seen a lot of cool stuff like that. I didn't give a great answer, but I mean, I think more on like a philosophical level, it, this type of knowledge, in my opinion, is the best way we have of knowing. And so I think oftentimes if you're thinking about like, well, can I even trust science, right? Can I trust articles that come out in the news? Well, I think that the the work itself is incredibly trustworthy um, by and large. I mean, obviously there are like bad instances, bad actors, things, p-hacking, things like that, motivations for people to do bad things. But for the most part, in terms of like our ability to know things about the world and know things about how people typically behave based off of the previous research we're doing and the current data we have, really this is this is what we have as our tool for knowing. And I think people oftentimes like to kind of lean on their me search is what we call it. Like, oh, well, my uncle said blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, well, you know, this science is wrong because I know someone that had this thing happen, right? We call it me search for a reason, right? Um, and so those types of, those ways of thinking aren't methodo methodological in their, in their uh, process that people go through for it. 
And so I don't know. I think that like, sure, there's problems with science out there. There's problems that probably institutionally we need to work through, but I don't, I think it's really the best way we have of knowing anything. <laughs> Which is, that whole trust yeah. the science and do your own information. I, those two mottos were just so terrible for people yes. having faith in institutions and like yeah. actually productively making change. Cause it was just thrown around like, Oh, just trust the science or, Oh, do your own information. And yeah, then it's, what does that mean? When you have people who don't have the tools to like, I'll do my own science. Well, do you have the tools? Or the me search thing of, Oh, I, I did all this research. And it's like, what? That, you just read a bunch of Fox news or NBC articles. That's where, that's what we're quoting yeah, here. That, that's not research. <laughs> Where's the empiricism here? People. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, and I think that, it's also an interesting position because when people do the work, the lifting to do that research, and I'm using quotes here, right? Whether it is I'm fact gathering, fact gathering from my uncle, or I'm getting all of my, I read all of these articles at Fox News or NBC News or whatever the case. If they did the heavy lifting to do that, they're going to buy into it real hard, right? And so then, and you come in and be like, are you sure? Did you consider other sources? Of course, I am an unbiased researcher here. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. And especially with me search, that is a, a rough thing to combat with some people when you start pressing and it falls apart. And it's like, oh, you just talked to your cousin and th yeah. that's that's your source yeah. of information on this. We're just going to stick with that. Yeah. Well, and people are really good at picking up sort of subtle cues that you are not a part of their same group. So even little things like, you know, um, I think one of our students was talking about going into a, an emergency room recently and they were wearing masks and they're like, you know, they said something like, oh, I, it's been a while since I've worn a mask. And the nurse standing there picked up on that comment and started talking about all of these other like political attitudes that were, you know, right wing a little bit here and there and being like, oh, yeah, you know. And then they brought football into football. it. It was like just the the tiniest Thing that people do say their behavior can be signals to others of like where you fall right who are who are you with and who are you against and so the second you start to kind of make somebody feel threatened with what you're saying they're going to put you in a group and if they categorize you as somebody that's not with them you're going to have a really hard time making any sort of meaningful influence or change on that person i've had conversations on the podcast where it's gotten a little dicey because that merely because i've brought it or asked a question and then you can instantly see it on the person they're making this connection of oh this person is not lining up they're not checking the boxes that i need them to check right now and the conversation oh takes you caught that huh? oh yeah you can feel it you're like ah. no with you two yeah are you sure yeah okay. i think we're saving it <laughs> yeah. but i've had guests and it gets you start swinging in this direction of like oh shit this just yeah. took just by asking it's not even saying oh i believe x or y it's just saying okay well how do you feel about this thing calling one of their beliefs into question mm -hmm. You feel the shift. You're like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, this just got really uncomfortable. Well, now you've just threatened their sense of identity, their sense of self. And it goes it's back existential to existential now. It's, yeah. it's, you're shaking their foundation. It's not just a question. You're, you're shaking what it means to be them. And that's huge. Even if it doesn't feel that way when you're asking the question, that's really what you're poking at. Well, yeah, especially <laughs> if it appears to be in a public domain, right? Because then it's, it's not just about the conversation that, uh, that you're having with that person in this situation. It's also like, oh, I'm going to be represented this way to, to all of Humboldt County, whatever the case is, right? And that very threatening for sure. I mean, that goes back to the definition of social psychology, right? It's the way in which people behave in the real or implied presence of others. Right now, there are three of us in this garage 
But there are many people that are, you know, psychologically in our minds as we're communicating. And that's that's how you get kind of influence even when folks aren't even there. Yeah. And that's how you get that sort of censorship where you watch what you say because, oh, it might be safe in this environment, but there is that externality of, are the people listening to this? How is that going to track with them? Yep, yep, for sure. And it gets a little, it's a little dicey. What The biggest problem that I see is that people are just too attached to their beliefs because the idea that if my belief is wrong, I am wrong, and that is a fundamental problem that I cannot experience. I can't be wrong because you're not, like you said, it's not just me being wrong. It's you are attacking this fundamental piece of me. And now that says something bad about who I am that, oh, I could succumb to this or I could be wrong. Whereas that's what we should, we should all want to be wrong in a sense, because then we have the opportunity to adjust and to change our information and not be wrong in the next situation. That's how I look at it. Yeah. That, oh, if I'm wrong right now, okay, let me find out as fast as I can. I'll adjust and then I won't be wrong next time. And I mean, that's like what with what we get to do looking at our data and running our data. Sometimes your hypotheses don't turn out and that can feel kind of soul crushing because you put a bunch of all of those research bucks that I get. No, just kidding. All that huge funding, that huge funding that I don't get. But the like blood, sweat and tears that I put into it didn't work out. But then you get the sense of so maybe I wasn't right. Why? Now I get to do the next thing. And yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think you see that in teaching a lot. You have different folks. Some people feel like threatened if they don't know the right answer straight away. And I'm like, if a student in one of my classes asks me a question that I don't know the right answer to straight away, it's there's two reasons. And I'm only going to give you one of them. Um, the one is that it's a really legitimately good question and I need to find the answer, right? But the level of threat that goes into that, because there's a few things with the with you know making people call into question their belief structure that um, threatens us on a multiple uh, on multiple levels, like this the integrity that we hold about like our whole self concept. If I'm wrong, then I'm not this you know this person with integrity with this like holy good self, right? So it attacks that, and it also creates a sense of inconsistency, right? So. Well, I hold this attitude, but this belief on this is wrong, right? Or you're calling me out because my behavior is inconsistent with this attitude. We got theories for that. Cognitive dissonance. <laughs> Why did I? Do that? Well, and when people feel more dissonant, they're more open to influence too. So you think about like um, some of the really common like misalignments that people have in their attitudes. For example, oftentimes people who believe in um, or, or believe that abortion is wrong also hold strong beliefs that the death penalty is something that should be enforced. So you find these inconsistencies in people's attitude structures all of the time. And oftentimes what you can do with that is create or highlight those inconsistencies to help kind of influence people and to make them more open to change. You can, but with belief structures, people have a lot, a lot of gymnastics to be able to hold those belief structures in place. And so we as humans are motivated for consistency. And once we've put that belief system out into the world, getting us to retract it is really hard. Well, and we're made up of contradictions, right? Yeah. You could have one person feel strongly about, oh, drugs are bad. And then they're wasted every weekend and they they love alcohol and they're stimulated all the time and they're on ADHD medication and all this stuff. And it's like, drugs are bad? Yeah. Drugs are bad? Really? Yeah. 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 Just certain drugs. What are we? Or like you said, with abortion and the death penalty or that, you know, we shouldn't kill people, but then they go and support these wars all over the place. And it's like, yeah, we need to be over there fighting. It's like you realize people are going to die. Innocent people are going to die. 
uh, we're going to, that's okay. We'll sweep that under the rug. Yeah. Well, and also who's going to die, right? Like that's a, that's, that's a whole other question. And it's really easy. It's a lot easier to dehumanize people in other nations than in our own for a lot of people. But then the, you know, the rationale that people create for that. And so and we are really, really good at reducing the discomfort that comes along with the things that don't match up in our lives. Like really, really good. Well, it's easy to be pro-war if you're not the one that's going to be over there fighting. There's that part too, right? <laughs> yeah. That is a big factor. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, Stephanie, Amber, I really appreciate you guys. This was a lot of fun. We will yeah. have to do this again. I, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks. We yeah. like talking social psych. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having us. Do you guys want to plug where people can find you, where they can find the Social Identity Lab, all that stuff? What's our website? SILab.humblesilab.org. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. We just got a new website. That's why there's a little confusion is we just rebuilt it. HumboldtSILab.org and it looks lovely. You can see a lot of the um, research that um, our students are doing, that we're doing, and that um, we connect uh, some of our work with our colleagues' work as well. And you get some nice pictures of Trinity County on there too because... And, and dogs. There's a dog section. So if anything else, if you found nothing else intriguing, there's dogs on the website. That's so. a strong selling point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we also get dogs at the lab meetings. So yeah. it's very important. I can see why you guys like the lab meetings. Okay. It's yeah. starting to click now. I get <laughs> yes. it. Yes. Okay. Well, really, thank you guys. This thank was a lot you. of fun. Yeah.